0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am delighted to have a friend and um, someone I've known since uh, she was about five, I think, and her parents rescued me from my boarding school, and we've been friends ever since. So, Sophie Giles, welcome. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Sophie is an occupational psychologist, which is a nice departure from my normal fare. So Sophie, uh, would you mind explaining what is an occupational psychologist?
1: So psychologists, as uh, many people would know, are are involved in the study and management of human behaviour and an occupational psychologist specifically focuses on behaviour in the workplace. So the populations I tend to be, I tend to see, rather than them being clinical, so people with a diagnosed ill health problem, mental ill health problem, I'm seeing professionals who may have mental ill health, but uh, it's manifesting in the workplace.
0: Okay. So do you mind just giving us 60 seconds on your background? and how you yes. ended up where you are.
1: Yeah, I did psychology at university, got instantly put off going into clinical psychology by a visit to an NHS psychiatric ward, despite uh, really enjoying the subject theoretically. So I went into banking because the uh, institutional bond sales desk at SBC Warburg thought, well, a psychologist will be good at sales. And then I, I ended up uh, doing a small brief stint in corporate finance as well and then worked on a merger and thought actually who on earth is doing the managerial due diligence here and at that point went back did a master's did it in Australia and ever since then it's been sort of a journey into leadership change management and then I spent 10 years as a director at a um, a quite prominent firm YSC where I did a lot of something called executive assessment and profiling. So that's been a, quite a significant part of my work ever since.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, let, let's start with the executive assessment and profiling side of things. A lot of people say it's all bunkum, but uh, I've been using profiles for three decades now. And I'm a firm believer that as a component of the recruitment process, they're invaluable, but also in terms of assessing the people that you've got. How can one tell whether one's using a good form of assessment versus one that's essentially woo woo?
1: Okay, so there are various strands to this. I think, unless we're talking about some kind of pure sales, sales of some fast moving widget, you know, actually, that there is a problem can take a while to show. So, for example, with my type of clients, There's a 12 to 18 month runway before you even see that that they're not good at sales in a professional context. But other signs that, you know, are really obvious. So I think you know that you've got a woo-woo assessment if your assessment process still allows in really problematic hires and cultural terrorists, because it would suggest to me that you, you know, actually you don't have a clear enough grip on about who gets on in your organization and what behaviors it tolerates or spits out. You also might see that you've got high unintended turnover. So I mean, a classic example of this is um, in law firms, 55 percent of new partners typically leave within five years. Now that might seem like a long time frame for some organizations, but for law firms, it's a, quite a short time frame, and actually the rate is even higher for certain practice groups. And given that they take two years before, with after hiring costs are taken into account to be profitable, clearly that's really problematic. I think a really obvious sign, actually, that your assessment is a bit woo-woo or not really fit for purpose is that you're, you're hiring a bunch of mini-me's. You know, you go into organisations and everyone's got a certain look about them. I mean, hiring in one's own image is a classic error, Right. You know, so you'll go somewhere and it's all, they're all female, blonde and slim or private equity. They're all, it's all very slim men wearing Euro trousers and a and a jewel coloured cashmere sweater.
0: I, I have to ask <laughs> what is a Euro trouser?
1: They're, you know, the flat fronted, skinny fit, sort of wool trousers, pointy shoes and... Um...
0: Oh, nice. That's
1: yeah, a, yeah. The taste forgot. Yeah, but it's a real, it's a real sort of look for their industry. But, you know, there's a real sort of economic consequence of lack of diversity these days. Not least of all, you fall foul of the criteria of some of your clients when they're in pitches. I've got clients, um, law firm clients, who are not even getting invited into pitch because their potential large client is saying, sorry, you don't meet our criteria for diversity. And that's beyond the economic benefit of having a diverse team. It's a really fundamental level. You know your assessments, if you've you've still got the same problems, you brought the new people in to address, you know, failure to do the results, grow a team, or institute some kind of change. But that sort of seems to get lost in the historic ether quite often.
0: Okay, so let's look at the whole recruitment process to begin with. Yes. Um, because I... It's the most important function of management as far as I'm concerned. If you hire well, most of your management problems go out of the window. So let, let's start with the million dollar question. Why is it so many, many managers are utterly incapable of interviewing well?
1: I think it's a failing within organisations to actually take the process seriously and train people throughout their time in an organization, both train them around both what matters for that organization. So what type of organization are we? What who do we want to hire? What are we trying to achieve? So in the first instance, the 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 manager lacks a framework to put their decisions against. And then secondly, they are not trained in some fundamentals of interviewing around how to what sort of questions to ask you also hear interesting processes for example a friend used to work at amazon and as i understand it at one point where they still do this i don't know they if seven people interviewed one individual the seven different people would interview around different aspects of that person so one people might major on their commercial capability for example another person would focus solely on their managerial capability so actually you have different people really going into depth to understand different capabilities whereas a lot of those sorts of interviews are quite poorly organized so the same question is asked again and again and literally you can get to the end of eight people interviewing one person and no one's remembered to ask them whether they went to university or not or whether they have a certain qualification or not.
0: Okay. I mean, experience, I've I've recruited hundreds, thousands of people over the, uh, the years. And what struck me is the interview process is generally, it's worse than flipping a coin in most cases because the majority of hiring managers first of all, see recruitment as a chore instead of being the most important function that they have on their plate. They do it so occasionally that they're rusty at best. And I remember when I was in recruitment back in the day when faxes still existed and I've received a a panicked telephone call from the hiring manager three minutes after the interview for this very expensive candidate was due to start asking me to fax across the CV. And their entire preparation would have been the walk from the fax machine to the interview room.
1: Mm. And they were
0: just about to spend the price of a not-insubstantial mortgage on buying this person into the organization. And what struck me repeatedly is that people tend to focus on all the wrong things. They focus on skills, experience, and historical results, which may have told me that Sophie was good once, but they don't tell me whether Sophie's any good now. doesn't tell me mm-hmm. whether she was lucky, carried, burnt out, uh, or will succeed in the role that for which I'm hiring her. So in your experience, what do you find are the best indicators of future success in role?
1: So I... I always have in mind a a psychological model of potential and where you focus will depend on the organisation and the type of culture and what they're trying to achieve. And also, I think what also matters is uh, that there there are some organisations and industries that are by their very nature incredibly complex. So, uh, you know, they're very intellectually driven. Um, so you have, so first of all, there are aspects like results on basic intellectual reasoning tests that really matter. And there are some industries that are so complex that people, when they score low on these, uh, these scores, tend to trip up because they just do not grasp the complexity of what's going on around them. But um, in terms of what I, what I look for and what I've found to be very important certainly for professional services and law firms in particular, there are three main qualities that seem to be very, very important. After they're having a solid score on a reasoning test, that does matter, actually levels of self and other insights and so levels of awareness and that manifests in terms of can that person describe what they're good at and what they're bad at, and what the challenge ahead is going to look like. They've got to be at some level um, affiliative. So not socially charming, which I find a lot of my clients are very seduced by. Oh, this person's, a, oh, what a lovely person they are. What a charming man he is. Absolutely make, makes bugger all difference. The question is, underneath whether it's a socially reserved skin, a bit of a brusque exterior, do they value other people around them? Are they going to be collaborative? Which really matters for large networked professional services firm. And then also drive. Is there something in that person, whether it's fiery desire to earn a massive salary a love technically of their profession or an absolute love of working in teams that basically gets them out of bed and really compels them. So there are some, I, I look for some really fundamental psychological characteristics that time and time again help both mean that the person has been very successful in the past and they carry forward into their new organisation. And also they those characteristics can help mitigate against other gaps or weaknesses. For example, I met a person, a, a litigator, and this individual scored very low on a particular critical reasoning test we run for this firm. But she had an absolute love of her subject knew that she was slow and had to take time to process new information. So, just worked super hard to compensate. And she had actually managed her career so that each move was an incremental step up that gave her the next foundation. So, she never missed out. So, she wasn't ever, she didn't ever have massive gaps in experience or knowledge or know how that could trip her up.
0: Interesting. I mean, the factors that I tend to look for are habit. The bulk of my work is around sales and management, some in marketing, uh, other related areas. So, what I look for are repeated behaviors and stuff that they do habitually without needing uh, someone's boot on their neck. I think attitude is really important. So, self concept is the number one. If they don't have a strong self concept, they will struggle with resilience. They need to have a strong money concept, and so they have to have a good relationship with money, and it's important that they don't see, let's say, £100,000 is not a lot of money in their mind, because if they're selling a million-pound proposition, then anything that they sell, they'll always be thinking, oh, that's expensive, and they'll suffer from the wrong type of buyer empathy. It's more like buyer sympathy. And they'll uh, respond in in the wrong way to the flinch. And the other attitudes and beliefs and values, I think, are really important as well. So, you've touched on something a couple of times, which I thought was very interesting, which is what is the intended outcome of making this placement? And I think when most people put a job description together, uh, they cut and paste the job description, the person they've just fired. And then they wonder why they recruit somebody just as bad again. So, my advice to my clients is start with the end in mind. Uh, work out what the outcomes are that, and the gains that you want this person to deliver over a three or five year period. And don't just think this year, think longer term, um, because otherwise you end up with this revolving door.
1: So often, job descriptions are so anodyne. Invariably, the organization wants God. And the job descriptions always fail to acknowledge either inherent difficulties in a team or inherent challenges in a team. And so I'll always ask for a briefing call. And then I find out something really interesting about what they actually want that person to achieve. It doesn't matter how you try to read between the lines, you never would have got to that by just reading the job
0: description. You've hinted at something else as well, which is... In my experience, people tend to hire in their own image only weaker. And often you get this skewing towards behavioural and communication style values like the manager. And very often what you need is more diversity. So why is it that organisations allow that to happen?
1: I think it's at an individual level, people interview and make decisions in their own image. And that clearly has a lot of inherent biases and issues but i was reflecting on this and i think it's it strikes me that it is very uncomfortable for some organisations to be really honest and open about what type of organisation they are you know what both not only what makes them good but also what makes them difficult to join if they were more honest about that you know, about the failings of their own culture, for example, then they would be much better at hiring the right people because then they would be able to put their hands up and go, do you know what? We're saying we want someone who's a, a good manager, but actually culturally, we are unable to onboard properly. We're useless at coaching. No one knows how to manage anyone around here. So really, we need someone who's brilliant at working out what the rules of the game are, very insightful, and, you know, whatever whatever it is or they're not prepared to acknowledge that they're combative, or they're really bureaucratic and... No, I'm not. (laughs) So so they're they're kind of their job descriptions and things are, are written to market to a firm of headhunters an incoming candidate, and they're trying to sort of hide the warts, and it makes it really difficult to then recruit honestly.
0: Well, building on the recruiting their own image... One of the things that I see in a lot of the companies that I work with, so tech companies in particular, is they tend to be a domain for white males. And what we know, and the research on this is absolutely categorical, that diverse teams have a tendency to have much better results than non-diverse teams. And then you have employers who seem to play to their woke, liberal, white, liberal audience by claiming that they're an equal opportunities employer. But if they really meant that they were, surely there would be more of them, um, more non-white, non-male panelists on the interview process and maybe even heaven forfend end on their board. But it it seems that diversity and inclusion are something that most organizations pay lip service to. And I think they pay a very heavy price. It's a hidden cost. I think
1: um, as a, probably even as a, a, a country and business in general, it's barely woken up to diversity and inclusion. For for a lot of organisations, it's about, let's get some women on board. When they're a bit more sophisticated, it's, it's more, well, it's now obviously BAME as well. But people aren't really thinking about socio, socioeconomic diversity so it's not thought of in complex ways. So it can't be handled in complex ways. And I think it's also very easy to look at a a board that, say, for example, is white and male and to think it lacks diversity. But actually, if you ferret underneath the surface, it could be that there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity in that group. So for example, I believe at the moment, the group least likely to go to university are white working class males. Now, PwC's former senior partner, not their current senior partner, went to a um, a polytechnic, um, and he was very proud of telling people but he's sort of come from quite adverse circumstances but people looking in it would have been very easy to sort of just go oh yeah that's that's tedious white male but yeah I think it, it comes down to something a bit even more primal than that when you're actually going through the recruitment process whilst you may have these artificial numbers like we need to have 50% of applicants who are Women. I mean, good luck with that with some university courses, for example, right, where they don't even have 2% of women. But just when uh, you've got certain types of people sitting in front of certain other types of people, they just feel more comfortable and they find reasons to critique more easily or pull apart a certain candidate. I mean, I I had uh, one briefing on a candidate, a female candidate, and um I was asked if I could scrutinize her leadership capability. This and she was going for, as a partner in a, a law firm. And I sort of delved into this a bit more. I said, why, why is she going to be going for a leadership role? Is she and it turned out she wasn't at all. Um, and and I, I picked up afterwards with other people. And I said, look, it's it's just really odd that you are trying to hold this female candidate to a higher standard than you would to your usual partner candidates at that
0: level.
1: But it creeps in funny ways.
0: It also then points to questions around the impact of poor hiring, poor onboarding, lack of management training around organizational effectiveness. Because organizations that don't have good people, good systems, good processes, good training Clear boundaries, clear values, then the message is very confused. and I think all of this starts at the top. and I'm mm-hmm. curious about the, the difficult conversations you must have to have with leadership because ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. And if you're unclear about what you expect, when people fail to meet your ambiguous expectations, you can't blame them. I know some more often than not management gets away with doing so but it's reprehensible because you set people up to fail and you set the organization up to fail so how do you have those difficult conversations with leaders when you see those symptoms existing
1: i don't <laughs> <laughs> you need to have trusted people where you have can have those conversations and there need to be ways of raising issues the problem i tend to have is Uh, The the, the challenge I I come up against um, is more often than not, I've been bought in by the very senior management to cast a filter over choices leaders at a lower level are making. And if they're not familiar with... They can get very defensive about their candidates. And rather than view it as a valuable way of helping them avoid a mistake or at least know what they're getting into, I can be seen as someone who's getting in the way of them bringing in the person they want, and they've been wooing for months and months. That's very difficult. And, you know, when you're talking about, say, a law firm partnership, where you might have, goodness knows how many practice groups, loads of different offices and regions, and not all of the practice groups constantly recruiting, them getting to know me all these different leaders you might touch on the process is, is really difficult to do. There's a level of communication. Sometimes they have to hire someone and it, for it to go wrong before they see the value, sadly. Interesting.
0: <laughs> okay. So what, what are the three questions people should be asking you as an occupational psychologist, but they don't?
1: What are the three questions they should be asking me? I think they should be asking me about how do we, how do we hire fewer mediocre people? Is one, right. and what I mean by that is a driving concern. Certainly for my law firm clients, has been avoiding really difficult people. Clearly, hired in one or two high flyers or people who are meant to be high flyers who've been total cultural terrorists and being very difficult very noisy promised lots and with great fanfare and great expense sort of left after a year and a half or two but actually in the meantime they're hiring a lot of people also at great expense who I would describe as sort of good colleagues but are they going to set the world alight are they going to help them be more competitive achieve more stay ahead of the game? Probably not. I think they should be asking more about if if we're to succeed in a really competitive market,
0: how do we avoid mediocrity? To build on that, what passes for average often is really quite poor. And often what people do is they settle. And I find that many mediocre managers will hire in their own image only weaker. And the net result of that is you end up playing this downward death spiral because people aren't held to a high enough standard there isn't enough accountability built in there is a lack of consistency in the cadence of coaching from senior leadership to the executive level down to management and throughout the organization and i think that the single biggest defining factor in team success is the manager's ability to coach. Why is that not something that typically appears on job descriptions, or if it does, it's rapidly sacrificed in the day-to-day operation?
1: I don't think, because I do executive coaching as well, my experience would be is most people don't know what coaching actually is. So, and that's from all sorts of industries. Most people think Coaching is giving people advice after listening a bit more than you usually would. <laughs> 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 They're not really coaching at all. They're just not talking as much. And they view coaching as a, a sort of a an activity where you have to hive off for an hour and sit at a coffee table and, and listen a lot before giving your advice.
0: The benefit of the audience, um, I, I have very strong views on this, but I suspect they prefer to hear yours. What is coaching and what isn't it?
1: Coaching is a process by which you help someone realise their own resourcefulness. By your listening, giving someone your respect, your open ears, and by asking open questions, you help someone see that the answer lies within them. As soon as you are giving someone advice, you are mentoring them. As soon as you are telling someone what to do, you are micromanaging them. And you might, as a manager, you're going to flip between all those things in a conversation. So you might coach, mentor, direct all in one conversation. And that conversation could be five minutes as well. So coaching is not a pregnant one hour long process. It could be, it could be five minutes with a couple of really well asked open questions.
0: Certainly within the framework of coaching that I've learned over the years, it's important to offer potency, protection, and permission. Um, Mm. So the coachee feels confident that they can say what they mean, and uh, they're not going to be punished for it. Their opinion matters, and that their voice will be heard. Coaching is about getting them to come up with the answer if you have to fill in the occasional gap, it shouldn't be any more than 20% of it. 80% of the heavy lifting needs to be done by the person being coached. And when they come up with the answer themselves, they own it. And they're far more likely to implement it.
1: Yeah, to to act on it. Yeah.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And the, the number of times I've heard managers bemoaning the fact, well, I've told them 100 times, well, who gives a fuck? If yeah. you've told them a yeah. hundred times, have you checked to see whether they actually either bought into it, heard it, or have any intention of implementing it?
1: And you know, we know the neurology behind this, which Simon Steinek talks, in, talks about in his TED talk on inspirational leadership. But it, it literally, you tell someone what to do, you give them the answer, and it literally fires up a different part of the, the brain, which is geared towards... Executing that task, but not actually retaining any of the information. You're not. You're not getting any anyone to think. I mean, I do it with my daughter, and she hates it because you'll okay. say, "What's the answer to this, moment I say, "Well, what do you think?" You know, and, and um, so well, why can't just <laughs> Well, because it's just too easy. Because you will never learn if I just tell you.
0: Absolutely.
1: And my father as well, learning you know how to use the
0: laptop or the. <laughs>
1: if I keep on pointing out where Internet Explorer is every time, he's never going to find it.
0: I told my dad he'd broken the internet when he managed to move uh, Explorer off the bottom <laughs> bar, so that was quite funny.
1: Another question I wish clients would ask more, and uh, although I push it for myself later on, is. Um, how do we prove this is working because i think quite often when when i first go in and um, start using psychometrics and uh, the sort of structural behavioral interview with a client we're working on a basis of we think we understand what makes people good and who gets it right and um, and who succeeds And then actually, when you do the evaluation piece around who's actually doing well and what predicts that, you know, these surprises turn up. I mean, the whole insight piece, insight being this key characteristic that determined success or failure at 18 months, one of my law firm clients, was a real surprise. And and it was completely independent of their levels of experience or how senior they were and of course the the value of it is is that it then now gives us permission to sort of ignore some of the experiential stuff that otherwise can be worn a bit like armor by some candidates.
0: (laughs) Well again this is really interesting because what I see in so many organizations is that Failure to ask themselves really tough questions. And in particular, one question which is really key is what are our attitudes towards failure? Because people often see failure as a personality defect Mm. as opposed to its real value, which is every failure is a teachable moment. Mm. And I've never learned anything really useful from my victories I've learned loads from a damn good drubbing. The number of times my clients and my prospects have kicked me to death. And you know, I've had to pick myself up and then reflect and learn. And I look at all the top performers and they have an attitude, which is they are personally responsible for the circumstances they find themselves in and the outcomes. They don't look for extrinsic validation. They have a strong internal locus of control. They are self-reliant, but they're also collegiate in that they will collaborate with others. So they're interdependent and they recognize that their vulnerability is a strength, their willingness to ask for help. And the best question I ever learned, I always thought it was why, but it's not, it's who. If I have a problem, and one of the reasons why I started this podcast was I had a load of questions. And I realized that if I wanted answers to those questions, what I should have fa- asked is who knows the answers? Yeah. And who, do I
1: ask- who, do I, who do I show my vulnerability to? Who, who do I ask for help? And it's interesting, you say it, because actually, so much of what you said just then touched upon that framework of potent- potential. First of all, seeing there's a problem. So, you know, stuff about your judgment, taking the initiative to go and find an answer, but also being self aware enough to know that you don't know, you could be part of the problem, and being affiliative enough to to lean upon networks to go and find out the answer. And yet, so often, clients will be seduced by someone who seems nice. But as I'm always saying to them, or when I ask them, who have you learned most from in your career? And invariably, they'll talk about a, a manager who was really really demanding and got them to do loads and actually could be might be considered quite critical but really made them raise their game so I think there's also a bit of a problem as well if you know when when we talk about a younger generation coming through where on one hand they say they want feedback all the time they don't they actually want to be looked after and given lots of compliments and they can't
0: self-critique I'm going to dispute that when I was a kid my parents' generation criticized our generation for crap music having no values and being delinquent and yeah, most our dads generation, dads they're doing exactly the same thing to the next yeah so, so it's, it's
1: kind of a thus it ever was if you're if you're younger, you're probably going to be yeah less I think, I think it's
0: Mark Twain <laughs> said, when I was 14 I couldn't believe how ignorant my father was seven <laughs> years later I couldn't believe how much he'd learned the reality is that I think if all human beings have an internal locus of motivation, and this is the thing that really pisses me off, um, you must be able to motivate a team. You can't fucking motivate anybody. Motivation comes from within. And if you can't uncover that, that's a management disability. You may have hired the wrong person because they don't have the motivation that you need. But more often than not, you've just been crap in your process, and you haven't uncovered their reason for coming to work. Um, mm-hmm. And if all people are doing is turning up to pick up a wage, um, then you don't have engaged employees. And I think more often than not, most of these problems are down to uh, the appalling underinvestment in middle management. Up on the shoulder saying, safe, bad news, your boss has just been fired because he was shit. Uh, you have a manager. Yeah. Now, and that's the runway. I'm taking on a number of roles as Chief Revenue Officer for a number of technology companies. And one of the things that I've insisted on with my clients is that right from day one, we establish what individuals' motivations are and what career path they want to pursue. And then we develop over a two-year period them in those areas so that they can grow into those roles. Young people, millennials and late Gen Zs, are really interested in my experience in growing, in learning, feeling like the work that they do is important and meaningful. And find me anybody who doesn't love to do important and meaningful work. And find me anybody who doesn't love to grow and learn. It's
1: interesting, though, because, of course, when there was the financial crisis, what happened? It wasn't that there was a decrease in applications to investment banks quite the opposite. In fact, they had an absolute surge in applications from young people who were like, oh right, that's where we get our money from. So I think we need to, any sort of blanket describing values to certain generations, I suppose we've got to be really careful. of. But it does come back to, you've got to know who you are as an organisation, because some organisations do it really well, and even then it's never perfect. So the army, there's a classic example of you know, a stepped progression through the ranks of becoming better at managing people. If you're really bad, if there's a war, you'll probably be the first person shot. Um so you'll sort of <laughs> you but then if if you if you're gonna if you're not good and you haven't been invested in middle in middle management training or even junior management training, because let's face it, from the word go, particularly in my law firm clients people are they're they're managing teams even if not annual appraisals they've got to be really honest with the fact that they don't invest in this therefore the people they bring in at a more senior level already have to be realized in this way
0: well this is really fascinating just as an aside sophie's dad and my dad both went to Sandhurst sandhurst together yeah And I I suspect there was uh, quite a lot of debauchery that went on knowing the two of them. But what's interesting is the shift in the hiring within the officer group is massive because in terms of DISC, when our fathers were going through Sandhurst, they were being recruited for their dominance. Whereas in fact, what I'm finding now, the officer layer within the services, certainly within the UK... They're more steady relators. So they're the people who eat last. They put their men first. And they don't have the same kind of sense of entitlement that the generation before our fathers had in terms of their status and their position. Do you not know who I am?
1: That's kind of the, the myth of the British officer, isn't it? But I think if you delve down into it and spoke to people like John Keegan, you sort of find out that the good officers have always been the eat last kind of leaders. Uh, absolutely. And it's but even then, more so now.
0: But what, what's really interesting is if you look at the qualities that make a fabulous manager, you yeah. have to derive their greatest satisfaction from seeing others thrive and succeed and meet their potential and where i see a massive disconnect is many managers who are promoted in the traditional tap on the shoulder kind of way their natural instinct is to do what was done to them now the problem with that is yelling beating your chest pounding the table and getting people to work harder is not a very effective management approach, and. The whole function of the supervisor, certainly in professional services, within IT, within the law, actually, that should be the smallest fraction of their role. Their main functions, I believe, are to be great hirers, great coaches and trainers, understand how to get the best out of people and to hold them to account, to provide them with the tools and resources they need to do their best work yeah to help clear the path and protect them from acts of idiocy, and to manage inclusively. And where you see highly engaged employees where they feel like their opinion matters and they feel like they're coming to work for a higher purpose than just picking up a wage uh, wage slip, you see up to four hundred and thirty percent higher profit per employee. Yeah,
1: it's, it's interesting because this is coming home to Reese with Covid. Because uh, based on, I mean, I was I was reading an article just this morning actually, where um, apparently during the pandemic, billable I mean billable hours technically when you become a partner in a law firm, your billable hours should go down. The idea being the associates coming up behind you, the team behind you should be picking up more of that type of work whilst you're focused on. BD and relationship management but in fact during Covid partner hours have hugely gone up and are now exceeding associate hours and at some level that is a failure of that is a failure of delegation adaptation to the situation and a failure of delegation because before the pandemic they weren't in a position they didn't get their people in a position to be able to pick stuff up without them hovering over them and micromanaging
0: and that's a really critical point your job as a manager is to get the best out of your people help them grow develop be more effective work towards redundancy so that you're no longer necessary and then you can focus on the higher value activities of business development of recruitment of uh, coaching and developing strategy but I see that across the board. It's not uh, just uh, within the law. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? <laughs> I was
1: about to get personal there. <laughs> <laughs> How to make red velvet cake when you've never made it before. That's it's very, very nice. easy. You
0: go onto YouTube.
1: Yeah, no, I'm sure it's very easy. But, you know, uh, if there's something you... Uh, my Horrible. daughter wants it for a birthday. I don't like it. She no. wants it. So I have no way of knowing whether it tastes good.
0: Well, it, it doesn't because it's full of colouring. Do, yeah. do you know what's really cool, rainbow cake or zebra cake? What, well, that's better or... Oh, well, the, the, the rainbow cake's got just loads of different colours in, but it's quite fun making it. But the zebra yeah. cake's really cool. So, yeah. um, I'll, I'll uh, put you in touch with my wife because she does make fabulous cake. Um, <laughs> okay. And no, she does make kind of red velvet. Here's what I'm... Um, if there's anything
1: I'm struggling with, I have... Uh, It's not a struggle per se, but it's a thorny intellectual problem I'm trying to to sort of get through. You know, I I know this thing called insight, self-insight and self-awareness matters, really matters, and it's very, very important, and it appears to be important across professional services. So I'm trying to work out at the moment, how do I take this construct where I have a set of questions around it, and make it into something that is that can be rolled out at scale how how do i help more clients use this with a lot of people so that they can make sure they get the best trainees the best graduates that they can somehow use it in you know, more widely in their recruitment processes
0: okay so tell me this is it possible to quantify what the cost in terms of time money resource morale conflict occurs as a result of low self-awareness
1: it is with the evaluations that we have done and we are doing i am doing that it's a way of quantifying it it's it's kind of like it's how do you measure it and i'm sure at the moment i'm wrestling with developing the the measure or the psychometric that would easily pick up pick this up at the moment Intellectual reasoning, very easy. There are loads of tools out there. There are lots of personality measures as well. But if you've got a question in a, a personality test that says, are you self-aware? People who are not will say, yes, of course I am. And people who are understated say, oh, I don't know. Well, that's definitely
0: a good way of looking at the reverse of whatever their (laughs) response is. But
1: Um, some people might know they're self-aware and not be understated.
0: um, So sort of getting behind that. uh, The the key question here, I think, uh, there are two. One is, are people willing to invest to find that out? first of all, because uh, experience has taught me that most entrepreneurs are people who produce elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And if the problem does exist, they don't know how to sell it. So presumptive questions are very powerful in Mm -hmm. the context of getting that buy-in. So it goes something along the lines of, so Sophie, tell me something. When you assessed your people for their level of self-awareness, What did you realize was happening in terms of conflict, in terms of absenteeism, sickness, knowing full well that they haven't done it? Mm -hmm. Ask the Mm. question as if they are uh, already doing what you're about to sell them. Because when they come back and say, well, we haven't, then the response to that is for a reason. The reasons are, didn't know, ignorance, okay? Didn't want to find out, fear. Okay, couldn't be bothered, apathy, or we don't have a problem, denial. Okay, and the other major one is ego. Well, you know, we're all for... So, uh, yeah, those the they don't fun... want to acknowledge their weaknesses. Yeah, absolutely. And so, often in my experience, that results in a difficult conversation. But the key to a difficult conversation is permission. Sophie, how do I tell you something you're not going to like without you getting offended? You're
1: actually asking me this. Yeah. Just ask
0: it. (laughs) Okay. And then once you have permission, you can say, if I were to tell you that you are part of the problem, a major cause, what would you say to me? And then you can enter into conflict, but with permission. And the power of that is that they can either be justifying, uh, they can either justify and defend, which typically means that they're brittle. And that tells you that you're probably beating your head against the wall. Or they say, you know, you're probably right. And now you've got uh, the thin end of the wedge in. The key here is to first of all establish, will they buy it?
1: With this sort of stuff, you run into a lot of organizational politics. Because, you know, I build a relationship, few relationships with a senior partner, various other people in an organization, then those people move on. And the, the next people, the next person might not want the same level of truth or honesty. And it's and it's an interesting relationship. I mean I, I would say, you know, most people, if you put a gun against their head would say, no, I want to know what the truth is. I want honesty. You know, 95% of people say, I, I want the truth, I want honesty. I would say 95% of people hate honesty and hate the truth. So
0: tell them. No, you don't. If I tell you the truth, you'll get upset and throw me out. And then have them fight you on that. It's an interesting conversation to have with a client, I would say. Absolutely. Again, I, th- I think it's something that's very valuable. The question is their willingness to change. Ability and willingness to change are critical. But very, um, very different things. And So, bringing the conversation back to where we were earlier, Joe Mullings and uh, Simon Sinek both talk about the difference between having someone who is very capable in terms of their skill or being very high on trust. And Joe Mullings has built a recruitment business which builds on average five times more than the average in his industry. And he recruits for moderate performance and high trust because you can build. Performance, but it's the trust element that's really key. And yeah. if you recruit for people like that, then they support one another. But the problem is that you can have a total ass come in who's very high on performance, uh, but very low on trust, and they burn through relationships. And in the kind of environment that you're operating in, you know, these people don't generally churn. Um, so you know, if, if you join Norton Rose, you know, as a, a young associate chances are you may well be with them for 25, 30 years. Yeah, so, you,
1: you know, you're seeing more and more movement amongst law firms, particularly uh, movement, I would say, from Magic Circle, because there are just certain practice areas where there's a queue of people waiting to become partner and they're going to have to wait years and years. So You have old, to wait for
0: someone to die. Yeah,
1: you, know, you literally, it is dead man's shoes. So you have to go somewhere else to have an opportunity. Interestingly, though, even though um, in some in a lot of the press I read, you know, those firms are viewed as being sort of the best and, uh, you know, technically excellent top tier, they can't sell, they, they
0: cannot sell. Their brand gets them through the
1: door. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they come with great prompts. They cost a lot to my clients. But I have one client now, he says they won't hire from Magic Circle because um, they've done all the analysis and they never bring in the business case.
0: No surprise. I, I've seen this all the time. You know, company um, Companies that are scaling up and they hire someone from a big firm and they're used to the infrastructure and the support and the, the yeah. logo got yeah. them through the door very common problem okay look um tell me this what's been really influential on you in terms of reading watching listening to around the whole arena of occupational psychology and recruitment if there were one or two uh, publications or thought leaders that you'd recommend people read
1: yeah so I'm always drawing inspiration from all sorts of places I have to confess um I have a, um, a particular obsession with military history, I have to confess. <laughs> and I know it's not always, you know, there's, there aren't always easy parallels, but certainly I've loved reading uh, publications like Voices of the Great War, whereby I think the, B- the BBC did a series of first-hand interviews with veterans from the Second World War before they died from the First World War and that sort of thing. There are lots of these books, actually. And I always think it's very interesting reading about the circumstances that take very sort of quite ordinary people and turn them into something much more than they ever thought they could be. And that there will be someone who's encouraged them along the way. So this isn't a very very sort of eloquent answer. I think it's been less something I've read and more the people I meet and the stories I hear. I mean, I've interviewed thousands of people over time, so I hear all their, their war stories and um, what, what gets people ahead. And, and And actually, if I had a pound for every person I'd met who grew up in Glasgow and was super driven now, and a pound for every person who was raised in a privileged nuclear household and grew up in kent and went to a nice grammar school and was deeply undriven i would be a very wealthy woman yeah. because, you know because the people the, the the glaswegian the people who grew up in glasgow um even if they came from quite privileged backgrounds as i understand it from sort of 30 40 years ago the poverty was there to see you couldn't escape it And then you know, and my sort of my Kent example, you know, those people—they've never suffered anything. There's never been any deprivation or anything that sort of lights a fire. So they're quite—they can be quite steady operators, but very plodding. And
0: sorry, a a really interesting uh, book. I think it may only be available on audio. Is Peter Block's "The Right Use of Power"? The right use of power. The right use of power by Peter Block, and that would definitely be worth a read. And um, I would strongly recommend The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. The Road Less... The Road Less Stupid. Right. Fabulous book. And uh, one that all partners in law firms should read. Because it holds up the ugly mirror in a way that even if they have come from privilege, uh, they will struggle to deny. And Principles by Ray Dalio um, is another fan. Okay. Tell me well,
1: this. I, love, I also I love Carol Dweck's work. Yeah. Carol Dweck has written, she wrote Mindset, which is obviously the popular version for, for normal lay audiences. But she's a very well regarded psychologist right. who's run a lot of empirical studies. And that whole thing about where does someone's sense of drive and motivation come from what what are the who has initiative who thinks that they can achieve and change things versus who goes into work with a what she calls a fixed entity theorist someone who is entitled believes that owed a favor and things should land easily to on their plate I mean, she's been very influential her work's amazing but I mean, she can predict racism not just performance?
0: Well, um, I've interviewed a number of high-flying young salespeople with five to seven years' experience. And the defining theme of all of them is that they have faced really significant adversity, either through childhood or in their early career. And um, it is the grit that makes the pearl. And throughout my relatively privileged life, I've been fortunate. I you know, I, I I was told once I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. And I don't deny it. I've been extremely fortunate. Yes. But it's the the point, the low points, the adversity, failure, the monumental fuck-ups that have been the pivotal moments in my career. Yeah. And I wouldn't change them for anything.
1: I've also seen that, you know, you get some very sort of strong themes that come out when I do interviewing, because I do a lot of biographical interviewing. So I do ask people about their backgrounds and early life, always with caveats around what actually goes into a report and how they can control the answers. But you get themes around where someone has lost a parent. So maybe they started living in privilege, but they lost a parent. Or, I mean, I've been told the most extraordinary stories. You know, a man who couldn't performance-manage people. And it all came back to the fact that he was viciously beaten by his father from the age of 9 to 15, 16, until he could vaguely fight back. So he cannot have conflict with anyone. But interesting, the number of people I see who played some kind of competitive sport... You know, whether it was swimming or football and played it to a really high level. And they came from a culture, a background of very low aspiration, often schools that even just 20 years ago were telling them they would amount to nothing or give up now, don't bother with university, all that sort of thing, which I find amazing that that was so recent. But their sport taught them that if they put the effort in and aimed high, they could get somewhere.
0: Again, very interesting. I I see that theme a lot. Rugby players who've achieved a high degree of, um, high level of performance in particular do very well in management, interestingly enough.
1: For me, rugby players are an interesting one because that's sort of the club thing with rugby players, the the team, the club. I quite often see people who come from a rugby background who are psychometrically, you would actually say they were quite a loner probably if they hadn't had that rugby club experience they probably would have been a bit socially awkward but they learn they learn to play by the rules of the game and what's right and wrong and um, through, through that experience so it so actually rugby's a great one for taking a a child that could very naturally become a bit socially awkward and actually rounding them out in that way
0: tell me this you've got a golden ticket and you could go back in time, and this isn't necessarily about regret, but you could go back in time and whisper in the ear, ear of the idiot Sophie, age 23, what one choice bit of advice would you give her?
1: <laughs> the idiot Sophie, at t- 23, probably wouldn't have listened to any advice. Uh, uh,
0: that, that, that's not the point.
1: <laughs>
0: um, maybe listen.
1: What, to this what, 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 what advice? Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. It's okay not to know ask for help.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: Which comes back to what you were saying before. I had this self-concept, and still to a certain extent, you know, dysfunctional independence. You know, I had to do everything myself. If I didn't know, a classic Carol Dweck, fixed entity theorist, I'm definitely not that anymore, which uh, I have a big, big belief in the capacity of humans to change. But you have to believe that that is your you have that ability to do so. Too many people think people cannot change. People can change uh, I dramatically.
0: I think that's fabulous advice, and I wish it's uh, something that I'd listen to because probably up until my mid to late thirties, I wouldn't ask for help. I show this armour, and it helped yeah. me back. Yeah, yeah, really.
1: But I worked for I worked for ten years with one hundred and fifty psychologists. I had no choice but to take <laughs> down my armour. <laughs>
0: thank you, I <honestly>. <laughs> So how can people get hold of you?
1: I have my website, mantisinsight.com. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Sophie Giles. So drop me a line through e- either of those mediums.
0: Excellent. Sophie Giles, thank you.
1: Thanks, Marcus Kauke.
0: <laughs> this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch. Either contact me or Sophie, and you can email me at marcus-last.com at or contact me through LinkedIn. If you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please ping me an email or ping me a direct message and put the two of us together. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.